You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. John chapter 12, starting with verse 12. The next day... The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you. Last Sunday, we learned of the anointing of Jesus. Alec had preached from earlier in the chapter regarding this event. And it was in preparation for the most significant week in human history which at once contained the most grotesque miscarriage of justice ever. And yet, through the final days of this holy week, it was the most powerful display of providence. And it was the greatest act of love. What we just read in this uh, excerpt here was the last Sunday of Jesus' earthly life. Now, in preparation for our time in this passage, it really hit me that, wow, this really is the last Sunday. How, how would we spend our last Sunday here on earth? And considering his humanity, this was the last Sunday that Jesus would be with his family and his friends and his disciples. So how was it spent? What was going on? What did he do and Why? To help us understand the, significant, the significance of Palm Sunday and, and what it means, let's go back three years earlier at the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry. At the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry in Galilee, you guys may remember this, his first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana. So it was there that um, Jesus, in response to his mother's plea and saying, hey, Jesus, they have no wine. Jesus said, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, first reading, that sounds kind of like an odd response. I mean, Mary just wants to be able to have enough wine for the guests. But when when you consider, as you read throughout the gospel of John, you begin to see that his hour is not yet And in mentioning that phrase several times through the gospel, 
what John is intending to tell us is that something very significant, very significant is about to happen. So what is this hour? Well, at the beginning of this hour, this time, and it's described here in our verses, that we know it is Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We read in Psalm 24, we read this morning in our call to worship, and a question was asked. It was a rhetorical question. But the question was, who is this king of glory? And that's a question that was reverberating through the hearts and minds of those who were there during this triumphal entry. And it was something that was either challenging them. For some, it was comforting them. And for others, it was exciting them and even threatening them. Now, as we move through this account, there's a structure there that helps us understand the point that John is making. And I hope that this morning, as we read through these verses, that it would stir in us a response that is befitting of the King of glory. And so the structure that we see in these verses is set up in three parts. The first one is the proclamation of the King. That's the proclamation of the King, and that's in verses 12 through 13. And that leads us to the character of the King. The character of the king is described in verses 14 and 15. And then the reactions to the king. And we see four in verses 16 through 19. So we have the proclamation of the king. We have the character of the king. And then we have reactions to the king. So look at verse 12 with me. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now the feast here, we know, is Passover. And it's celebrating how God had delivered Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. It was the Exodus. And it was at this time during this feast that there was a lot of faithful Jews throughout the Mediterranean world that they had made their way, their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they often did so not just on the feast, but days earlier so they could um, uh, purify themselves for the feast and go through all the rites and rituals that they needed to do. So when you consider all of the Mediterranean world, the devout Jews coming to Jerusalem, consider this. There was a swelling of what some estimate to about a million, could be as much as two and a half million, coming to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem at that time was only probably about 100,000 people. So at least 10, perhaps even 20 times that amount. And so saying that is important because what that does is it presents an obvious problem for the Roman Empire. And you think about crowd control. When there's a whole crowd of people, it could become uh, potentially dangerous. And the way that Jews, they had viewed Rome Rome at that time, it was like an occupying force. And so when you consider this feast, it always presented a potential occasion for Israel to overthrow these, quote, occupying forces. Now, as difficult as that would have been, little Israel, Rome, world empire, The mistreatment of the Jews, and they were mistreated, 
the mistreatment of the Jews by the Roman Empire, it always made that a distinct opportunity for them to incite a resurrection or insurrection, excuse me. (laughs) Now, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, we'll hear more about him on Good Friday. He knew that very well. And so what's more is the, the fragile hold of power that the Jewish authorities had, and that's the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and the chief priests, their perceived control was made possible, actually, through an uncomfortable balance of power with Rome. So it goes something like this. Rome says, if you keep your people in check, then we'll keep you in power. That's That's the arrangement that was going on at that time. But we see this massive crowd during Passover. And no doubt, everyone took notice from the Roman guards to the Jewish authorities and to all the pilgrims. And they took note because of two specific people. Number one was Jesus of Nazareth. And the other was Lazarus, who Jesus rose from the dead. And what the crowd did was pretty astonishing. When you consider what had happened earlier, it was understandable. So the palm branches, what are these palm branches? Well, they're they're considered a national symbol of Israel. And they wave them in frenzied celebration. And one commentator puts it, he says, with this frenzied celebration, it was a nationalist hope that had a messianic liberator was going to be coming on the scene. And it seemed to make sense that this was a time. Think about this. Jesus, for three years, was preaching about the kingdom of God, not some little nation of Israel. Jesus had made a blind man from birth see. And Jesus, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So, could this Jesus be the long-awaited deliverer or liberator or king that they were expecting? They proclaimed as much. Look at verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Excuse me. Now, if the palm branches weren't enough, what they cried out confirmed the status of who Jesus was. The words that they yelled out, Hosanna in the highest, those came from Psalm 118. And not only were they used in the procession of the feast, but these were words used to welcome a Davidic king. They were very clear, very explicit. What Hosanna means, it literally means give salvation now. And it was used for one who could actually give salvation now. And the following phrase, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord, was not just someone like, oh, here's a messenger coming in the name of the Lord. It was actually meant for someone who embodied everything that the Lord represented. And to be even more explicit, the crowd cried out, even the king of Israel. Now, we're going to read later on in the text that the crowd 
Though they were crying out, they had different motives. They weren't all pure motives. But consider this. What was being said and what was being proclaimed was a truth that had eternal consequences. Jesus was being introduced, coming in the name of the Lord, and he was being introduced as king. So who is this king of glory? Would he conquer? Would he overthrow the Roman Empire? Would he restore Israel to their former glory? He would be a king who would exceed all their expectations and more. And for us, he would be the king who would exceed all of our expectations as well. This king of glory, who is he? Well, he doesn't come like other kings would, riding on a horse, ready to make war. His battle was of a different kind. His liberation was one of an eternal nature. So let's look now at this character of the king. Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Sitting on a donkey's colt. Contrary to what everybody was in a frenzy about. Jesus did not come to bring a cessation to the hostilities that they were receiving. These are not, he doesn't come to bring a cessation of hostilities of an external nature, conflict between nation against nation. Or he doesn't come solving problems limited only to the material realm. But I want us to understand this. As we read in Psalm 24, he is sovereign over all and all are subject to, to him. The opening word to Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. But here we see Jesus, King of the universe, riding into Jerusalem on an animal that clearly says, I'm coming to bring peace. Now, with respect to the crowd and the nationalistic hope and the expectations of the crowd, to overthrow Rome, Jesus entering in on a lowly donkey, it communicated something very specific. Bruce Milne, he's a commentator. He says this, Jesus deliberately demilitarizes their vision and he declares the nature of his messianic rule. One, a rule of peace and gentleness. And he says, nothing further from a zealot's view of the Messiah could be imagined. And so, Zechariah, the prophecy from which this comes from, Zechariah, he describes this king as righteous and humble. John quotes the prophet in verse 15, and he uses language here that God uses throughout the Old and the New Testament. It could be familiar language, but he uses it in a way to ensure stability and security. He wants to give us comfort and peace. And Jesus, the quotation here, speaks with a strength and a tenderness. It gives us a certainty that all will be well. Verse 15, fear not. Fear not. 
Fear not, daughter of Zion, for your king is coming. He's sitting on a donkey's colt. Church, apart from Christ, we do have everything to fear. We have sin to fear. We have death to fear. We have hell to fear. Even more, we have the wrath of God to fear. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. As a daughter and as a son of the King, we have this assurance. Jesus also says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. In Christ, we do not fear. Now, furthermore, as Zechariah the prophet describes this king, this king of glory, his rule will not be limited by geopolitical boundaries or ethnicity. That's very limited thinking. But his rule is going to extend from sea to sea, to the ends of the earth. And even more, I want you to hear this this morning. Zechariah the prophet says this. Because of his blood covenant with us, he will set us free from the spiritual bondage of sin. That is the battle that will be won by this king of glory. So again, who is this king of glory? And how does he establish his kingdom? And this is where the totally unexpected the unimaginable becomes reality. You remember how John wrote of Jesus not being arrested or revealing his full purpose because his hour had not yet come? This Palm Sunday in the text, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem is his hour. Look ahead with me at verse 23. Verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And this is where we hear something unexpected. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And Jesus was speaking of his death. And it's the ultimate act of obedience to the Father in order to gain, listen to this, in order to gain a great harvest. We're sitting here as evidence of the grace of God in his death and rising again. Now, something else here I want us to notice. Knowing that his death was just days away in order to fulfill the will of his father, we're going to see something here about Jesus' humanity. Full humanity. Look at verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
the reality of his suffering has come. And even if it's a couple of days before his actual arrest and his crucifixion, but we see here very clearly that Jesus is resolute. He is unwavering in what he's going to do. Second half of that verse 27. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Look again at verse 31. We're going to jump ahead a couple of verses. Verse 31 says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So this is the overthrow that was needed, not some mere human government. And here's how it's accomplished. Verse 32, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. This king of glory will establish his kingdom and thus be glorified by way of the cross. By way of the cross. As the offspring promised in Genesis 3, as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, it was always going to be this way. And now his hour had come. He establishes his kingdom of righteousness, his kingdom of peace, his kingdom of joy in the spirit for you and for me. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake, church, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. This king of glory, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He endured the cross, despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This king of glory came humbly riding on a donkey, making peace with God on our behalf as the only righteous substitute for our sin to satisfy the righteous wrath of the father by the blood of his cross. This is why Jesus came. Now, the final part of our passage where we're going to see four reactions to the king. Now recall as I opened our time together, my hope is that This text, this passage that we're going through, it's going to stir in us a response that is befitting of the king of glory. And in verse 16, we're going to look at the response of the disciples. His disciples, verse 16, did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Before the resurrection of Christ, we often see the disciples as ones who are slow to believe, right? And in the case of Peter, he was speaking out of turn or he was relying on worldly means to follow Christ. But this is not meant to point out that shortcoming. 
I want us to be encouraged by this because it says here that the disciples, when Jesus was glorified, post-resurrection, when the Spirit was given, the Spirit who guides us into all truth, when Jesus was glorified, the disciples remembered. They remembered that these things had been written about him. As believers in Christ, we're called to remember, are we not? We're called to remember the wonderful works of God. We're called to remember and to recount his faithfulness. And did you know that God does this as a way to sanctify us? That's one of the ways he sanctifies us very clearly. And he's faithful to do that. We know that, right? He is faithful to do that. So he does so by having us remember what had been written about Jesus. Jesus himself said in the book of Hebrews, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, the very word of God. In praying for his disciples and us, Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So we're called here to remember these things that were written of Jesus. Now let's take a look at the second reaction here. This is of this specific crowd. There's two crowds here. Um, This is the crowd that was different from the one in verse 12 and in verse 18. This is the crowd in verse 17 that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. This is the crowd that continued to bear witness. They continue to bear witness. So consider this. Consider that when we're in Christ, we grow in grace. When we are in Christ, we grow in the knowledge of this king of glory. And as we do that, we grow in our witness of him. We are his And by virtue of being his, we bear his image. Think about that. We are image bearers of the king, not just in the flesh in the Adamic creation sense. We bear the image of the king of glory because we are now Christ's, bought with his precious blood. Now, when we're confronted with temptation... We could choose to bear his witness. We could choose to bear his witness by living by faith in the son of God who gave himself for us and we can die to our flesh. To pursue in the moment of temptation, this momentary pleasure, this indulging of the flesh, this time where we think that we can even manage our sin. It's to deny this king of glory. But yet, this king is merciful, is he not? This king is merciful, and he will always receive us back as his very own. As Zechariah had said, because of his blood covenant with us, he will deliver us from the bondage of sin. And even more, listen to this, God is faithful to transform us into the image of his son. And so, we're able to continue to bear witness of this King of glory. That's glorious news.
Now, we talked about this crowd, the first crowd. There's a second crowd in verse 18. The reason why this crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. Think about that. This is the crowd that is eager to see miracles. This is the crowd that's going along with everybody else, not to live by things that are unseen and not to live by faith. This isn't that crowd. This is the one who wants to live by sight. This is the same crowd because they love the praise of men. That days later, they will cry out, not Hosanna in the highest. They will cry out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then finally, we see the fourth reaction, that of the Pharisees in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And you can see here, there's this extreme frustration in this reaction to Jesus. And all the more what it does, it reinforces in their hearts their plan to have Jesus killed. They're blinded by their ambition to have control. They don't want to give up their kingdom, so to speak. Even if this kingdom that is going to be replacing theirs is one of peace, a kingdom that is good and righteous, they don't want it. And their rationale, earlier in chapter 11, they said, if we let Jesus keep healing people and raising them from the dead, people are going to believe in him and the Romans are going to take away our place and our nation. They were hell-bent on maintaining control. Now, what about us? What's our reaction? If we're honest, there is some species of the crowd in us going along with others because we do love their praise instead of the allegiance to our humble king. Even if that means giving up our social status, that's a big deal. We care about what our friends think of us. Or is our reaction something where we love Jesus because it's convenient and it suits our needs? We look at Jesus as something unique, even helpful, but we're not willing to have him be our Lord, to trust in him completely. We cling to the things that we see instead of believing that Jesus is who he said he is because what is written of him is sufficient. Church, God's word is sufficient. For some of us at times, perhaps the Pharisee in us is alive and well unwilling to give up control when we have our own little kingdom and when our own little kingdom is breached when someone is challenging us and it could be anyone but often it's those closest to us very often it's our own spouse when conflict arises do we bow down in obedience to our king not to be passive 
That's not what Jesus did. We're not called to be passive all the time, rarely. But are we called to be humble and to esteem the other better than ourselves? To have the mind of Christ, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who is humble even to the point of death, even death on a cross? Or do we fight to keep what we feel is rightfully ours, believing that what we give away now in this life, in service to our King, will ultimately be rewarded by His very presence in eternity? There is a choice there when we're confronted with conflict. John is very clear here in his message. Jesus is the king of glory. No one, not the leaders of this Jewish nation, both zealots and religious leaders, not the most powerful empire on earth, Rome, not even the, rulers, not even the ruler of this world, Satan, can take away, much less exert the authority that only King Jesus has. Nothing will prevent Jesus from this hour, his time where he will proceed with unwavering purpose and humble obedience toward the very thing that those earthly powers have themselves created, the cross. In due time, Jesus will be glorified. The providence of God. Church, these things were written so that you may believe in the King of glory, that you may believe in Jesus, that he has come to seek and to save the lost, to give new life and to bring us to the Father, where in his presence there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore.